Well, it's indeed an honor to be able to introduce to you Dr. Joseph Haju, um, who is an honorary fellow. Oh, sorry. Is this a microphone? It, it, it's really an honor to be able to welcome you all this evening to the European Union Center event to welcome Dr. Joseph Haju, who is an honorary fellow at the University of Deakin. And he's going to be speaking to us tonight on Berlin and, and its Jewish community, Great Significance, Destruction, and Surprising Revival. And I'll just read the last paragraph that was sent here because I think that that really sort of um, highlights the discussion we'll be hearing tonight. The decade before the year 2000, the size of the population claiming to be Jewish in Berlin increased fivefold. As those who actually participate in Jewish community life is only a fraction of this total, the meaning of Jewishness appears to be being being interpreted in a somewhat fluid manner. Another issue has arisen. What happens when the newly arrived immigrant group to to be integrated into Berlin's Jewish community is in fact the majority? Who integrates with whom? It is with questions such as these that the leaders of Berlin Jewry are now being confronted. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you. Thank you very much. Just to put this into a broader context, I've been fascinated by Berlin as a city. Is this it? Is there a longer cord here? Oh, it's not on. Right. Now then. Is that better? Yes. Right. So I'll, I'll talk into it. Anyway, uh, what led me to this interest in the Jewish community in Berlin is an overall interest in the contemporary situation of Berlin, which I think is one of the most exciting and fascinating cities in the world. And I've been involved with Berlin for over 40 years and that culminated in a publication of my book on the city which came out at the end of last year, Berlin Today. And of course the the more I delved into Berlin and its history and culture, the more I realised that the role of the Jewish community is one that cannot be ignored. Because Berlin has had a Jewish community of very long standing and perhaps even more important Until the 1930s, it was a Jewish community which had been spectacularly successful, and not just moderately successful, but spectacularly successful, out of all proportion to its numbers, because at its prime, it it, it only comprised 5% of the population. Yet, across the spectrum of Berlin life, uh, the members of the Jewish community were represented in no uncertain fashion. It's also, of course, a community whose modern experience has been fraught in a psychological sense and, of course, its sense of belonging and security in Berlin, as you all know, uh, came to a catastrophic end. And one section of my talk will deal with that. However, through a series of unexpected and surprising confluence of circumstances, it is now showing healthy signs of revival. 
And this has sort of really amazed everybody, not just in Berlin, but in all parts of the world. At its pivot, it was axial to modern Berlin, German, if not European culture and creativity. But before I go on to any other details, I think a few relevant statistics are called for. Is, is the echo bad? Um, I'm fine. Now. I think you're doing well. Is it? Okay, right. Mm -hmm. In 1930, Germany's Jewish population was estimated at about half a million, 500,000. And of course I'm now assuming something which cannot be assumed and that is the definition of who is Jewish. I'll touch on that later on. But it was generally accepted as being round about half a million. Of these, one in three, or about 170,000, lived in Berlin. And the, with that, the Jewish community in Berlin was by far the largest of any city in continental Europe and was only rivaled by that of Vienna. Other German cities like Cologne, Frankfurt, Breslau and Hamburg also had significant Jewish communities but they were very small and generally less influential in urban life than that of Berlin. So therefore it is important to put the present situation of the Jewish community in Berlin into this broader historical cultural context which will be roughly one-third of my talk. This will be followed by the second section which will deal with its destruction from 1933 onwards. And the third part will describe recent events that have led to a Jewish revival in Berlin and also I'll seek to make some comments about the characteristics of the Jewish community in Berlin today. So firstly, the historical context. There have always been Jewish people in what is now known as Germany. From BC times, the time before Christ, the main trading centres along the Danube and the Rhine had Jewish communities, Mainz, Worms, Trier, so on and so on, Regensburg. So in that sense, there's nothing novel about there being a Jewish community in Berlin. However, the Jewish community in Berlin is slightly different inasmuch as its creation, development, was linked to the spread of the Ashkenazim Jews from their heartland in the south of Russia in a region which can be in very general dis, uh, terms described as the northeastern shores of the Black Sea extending towards the, the Caspian. And of course this is a very delicate and controversial issue I believe particularly in Israel inasmuch as there is a school of thought which says that the Ashkenazim Jews are a distinctive group from the Sephardic Jews and, and they were the descendants of a people, a Semitic people called the Khazars who converted to Judaism at some point in the past and I'm not an expert on this but if you wish to follow this up the most famous exponent of this hypothesis that the Ashkenazim and the Sephardic are two distinct people, two distinct Semitic people, is the Hungarian Jewish writer Arthur Köstler, who in his book The Thirteenth Tribe 
my way of thinking, makes a very convincing case. And of course the reason this issue is, is highly delicate and in certain circles no-no in Israel is because if it is true, then the Ashkenazi Jews have no historical connection to the Holy Land. The Sephardic Jews obviously do, but the Ashkenazi don't. Anyway, I'm not an expert on this issue and this is by way of just creating a broader context. Anyway, during the last thousand or so years, the Ashkenazi Jews have drifted westwards from their heartland in southern Russia. Now the reasons for this have been complex and manifold, uh, partly because they suffered discrimination in the sea of Slavs in, amongst whom they lived. Then of course pogroms, persecution of Jews broke out at uh, varying intervals. And plus of course, moving westwards was seen as a way of improving their life. So it was economic opportunity, greater freedom, so on and so on. And you look at, for example, uh, the, the, bi the biographies, family trees of prominent New York Jews. There's inevitably a grandmother, grandfather or great uncle who did this east-west movement and ended up in New York. And usually it was, you know, Russia, Ukraine, Warsaw, Berlin, Hamburg, where you caught the boat, and then you landed in New York. So there is this, this clear east-westward movement by this particular group of people. Now, in this process, Berlin rapidly became what we might call an intervening opportunity. In other words, it was seen as a place with an attractive life and freedoms and economic potential where more and more Jews drifting westwards decided to stay and make their home. This was given a big fillip by the results of the Thirty Years' War between 1618 and 1648, during which Berlin was largely obliterated. The northern, what is now northern Germany, suffered particularly severely as a result of the Thirty Years' War. Therefore, the ruler at that time of Berlin-Brandenburg, Frederick William the Great Elector, encouraged migrants to settle in Berlin. He wanted to revive the town, revive the economy, so on and so on. And large groups of Protestants who'd been persecuted in France, Austria, Bohemia, were welcomed to Berlin. And amongst these was also a group of Jews who fled persecution in Vienna. He in fact passed a special act welcoming 50 Jewish families to Berlin in 1671 and he guaranteed them freedom to practice their religion and to engage in trade and commerce. And in fact the year later, 1672, the first synagogue was opened in Berlin. This was the beginning of two and a half centuries of religious tolerance and economic opportunity as far as the Jewish people who had settled and were coming to Berlin was concerned. In 1812 the Jewish residents gained citizenship rights but there were still certain forms of discrimination against them but legally they had full citizenship rights and of course they derived considerable benefits and in fact helped mould the rapid rise of Berlin as a major economic, financial and cultural powerhouse. 
This commenced about 1840 and with the creation of a unified German state in 1871 it accelerated and there was tremendous flow of capital into Berlin, partly reparation payments which Bismarck imposed on the French. So you can see 1817-1918 there was a tit for tat there. 1871 the French were made to pay, 1918 the Germans were made to pay. And by the beginning of the 20th century Berlin had become the major industrial and financial centre of Europe and the rise of industries such as mechanical engineering, chemicals, pharmaceuticals, electronics, banking, media, transport made it. And certain Berlin brand names like Siemens, AEG, Borsig, Telefunken became global brand names. This of course was coupled with the dynamic growth of the city. In 1861, Berlin had about half a million people, 547,000 to be exact. In 1877, it passed the one million mark. In 1905, it passed the two million mark. In 1930, it passed the four million mark. And in fact, was after New York and London, the third largest city in the world. So there was a six-fold increase in a couple of generations which is astronomical. People referred to Berlin the beginning of the 20th century as the Chicago of Europe because, as you know, Chicago and the United States experienced a similar dynamic boom during this period. And during this half century or so, the flow of Jews to Berlin from the East accelerated because they saw it as a boom town where there were so many economic opportunities. And of those already there, or their children, they left the ghetto in the Scheinenviertel, or the Shed district northwest of the Alexanderplatz, and joined mainstream bourgeois Berlin society in the western districts of the city. And the progression was really dramatic. Michael Blumenthal, who is one whose family was one of these in a fascinating book about his family's history argues that Europe had rarely seen such rapid social mobility as that experienced by Berlin's Jewish population in the half century prior to World War I and the sequence was very clear to see grandfather came from a village in Galicia or further east set himself up as a peddler in one of the slum districts of Berlin. His son was already a small shopkeeper or moneylender and the grandson was already a solicitor, journalist, doctor and in some cases a banker, manufacturer or large retailer. The whole sequence of social mobility from bottom to top of the society so to speak was completed in three generations, a period of 60 to 70 years. And again to quote Michael Blumenthal, more and more of Berlin's Jewish residents turned their backs on the old rabbinical values and entered the modern world. 
They took the opportunities which booming Berlin offered and a surprising number of them reached a prominence in Berlin life which Jews had never done before. In the process, they made German culture and lifestyle their own. A couple of examples of this. A man called Hermann Wallich was the co-founder of the Deutsche Bank, which is the largest German bank even today and, and is a global player in the world of finance. An engineer called Emil Rathenau very quickly saw the potential of Alva Edison's invention, discovery of electricity. He took out the patents and he and his colleagues invented the modern light globe and the brand name Osram is still there. He founded a large electronics firm called AEG which then didn't just make uh, light globes, it made generators for power stations, it made rolling stock, eventually joined with Siemens in pioneering radio, uh, radar, etc, etc, etc. His son Walter was foreign minister, the first foreign minister in the democratically erected Weimar Republic after Germany's defeat in 1918. The Weimar Republic between 1919 and 1933 facilitated this process because all legal discrimination against Jews uh, ceased. And the result was spectacular. David Clay Large, an American historian in his book Berlin and Modern History, quotes some very interesting statistics for the prominence of the Jewish community in Berlin life. Remember, they were at most 5% of the total population. And he says, by 1925, 7 out of the 10 Berlin banks were owned or controlled by Jewish Berliners. The three largest department stores were run by Jewish, or owned by Jewish Berliners, KDV, Tietz and Wertheim. The two largest newspaper and book publishing companies were owned by uh, Berlin Jews. Three out of ten doctors were Jewish and four out of ten lawyers in private practice were Jewish, which is an astounding achievement for a group which is only 5% of the total population. In the arts, of course, the Weimar Republic is world famous and it, it was arguably the centre of Western artistic life in the 1920s. And there again the Jewish names proliferate. Artists such as Max Liebermann and George Gross, Max Liebermann, uh, who introduced Impressionism, the Impressionistic style of painting to Berlin after studying and, and working in both Amsterdam and Paris. George Gross, a Berliner, whose depictions of Berlin life are in fact quite Hogarthian. That very fine dividing line between affluent decadence and sleaze, his <laughs> painting shows superbly. And that of course was the sort of two-sided picture of Berlin society at that time. The theatrical director Max Reinhardt he invented the revolving stage, was Jewish, and he was the most famous theatrical director in Berlin at that time. 
filmmakers, film directors. It, it practically becomes a who's who later on of Hollywood. Billy Wilder, one, two, three, some like it hot later on in Hollywood. Michael Curtis, whose film is, is one of the icons of modern cinema, Casablanca. Fritz Lang, Dr. Mabu's Metropolis, Ernst Lubitsch, Ninochka, claim to fame is that's the only comedy role Greta Garbo ever played. The, these all started, filmmakers all started their careers in Berlin. And either because they saw better opportunities in Hollywood, left in the late 20s, or when Hitler came to power, they were forced to leave. Composers, Kurt Weill, who set the plays of Bert Brecht to music. Friedrich Hollander, who's perhaps not so well known outside Berlin. He was a, a cabaretist and the Berlin political cabaret of the time was famous for its biting satire. And he wrote a lot of the librettos, a lot of the texts for political cabaret. Publisher Leopold Ullstein, he was the Rupert Murdoch of 1920s Berlin. And if you are ever in Berlin, to see his headquarters is amazing. It's, it's south in the suburb of Tempelhof and it's this huge structure with towers and archways and courtyards in that contemporary expressionist style of architecture. The humorist, cartoonist and journalist who's become a, a sort of cultural icon of Berlin because he drew and did texts on the life of the working class of Berlin. Heinrich Ziller, he was Jewish. And a very interesting PS to him is his grandniece, Helen Ziller, is today the leader of the opposition in the South African parliament. At the same time, the poor traditional Jewish population of the Shed district of Berlin was being augmented by new waves of Jewish arrivals, again from the east, driven by the upheavals of the Bolshevik Revolution, plus general poverty, etc., etc. As I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, in 1920, Jewish Germans saw all legal discrimination abolished against them. So whichever career or pathway they chose was legally available to them. But of course German society in the 1920s was highly fragmented and I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it was at war within itself and anti-Semitism was very much a theme in this turbulent social mix. It was very hard, for example, for a Jewish German and Jewish Berliner to be admitted into the civil service or to the, into the upper levels of the army, such as the officers' corps, because these were very much bastions of Prussian conservatism in the 1920s, very embittered about the loss of the First World War and the moral guilt and the heavy reparations which the victorious allies had heaped on Germany. So that was one element. There was a strong sort of us and them thing between the Jewish entrepreneurial class or the avant-garde artists, actors, and this conservative bastion of, of Berlin and 
German society, the civil service, the state legal apparatus, and the officers' court. Added to this was, of course, the 1923 inflation, which destroyed the savings of the Berlin and the whole of the German middle class. And, of course, the final straw in all this was the 1929 Wall Street crash, which resulted within 18 months of 30% unemployment in Berlin. In other words, one, per, one working age person in three was out of a job. You know, which is a level of unemployment which is hard for us to fathom. You know, we scream if it's one in ten. Ten percent unemployment, but thirty percent, one in three, is something I don't think we can comprehend. Although I suspect we came close to it here in 1931. Anyway, then all of this was reflected in the rise of the Communist Party, whose founders and philosophical mentors, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, were Jewish. So you can see the volatile mix here. And Adolf Hitler and his followers, with their ideology of racial Darwinism, were able to develop and gather broader populist appeal in this lethal and toxic social-cultural mix. Quite apart from which, that, as I mentioned earlier, Jewish Berliners were prominent in the avant-garde arts, whether it was painting, drama, music, acting, dancing. And the provinces in Germany regarded this as totally negative, destructive of traditional values. I mean, this, the provincial Germans weren't limited to this. I think the provincial French and the provincial English and the provincial Americans had similar views about what was going in in their respective metropolis. Because, you know, I mean, now we, we are used to atonal music, we are used to abstract painting, we are used to, in inverted commas, letting it all hang out. But to people whose formative years were in the late Victorian, early Edwardian era, this was totally shocking and totally destructive of values which they were brought up to hold dear. Anyway, it is in this mix of economic collapse, cultural ferment and social conflict that Hitler was able to gain power and as you know he was named Reichschancellor on the 30th of January 1933. This gets me to the second section of my talk, the impact of this on the Jewish community. Now remember Nazi ideology was based on this kind of racial Darwinism in other words, the survival of the fittest race. And of course, fittest was defined in terms of resilience, moral fibre, environmental adaptability, etc. And the unfittest in terms of sickliness, decadence, lack of patriotism, so on and so on. And lo and behold, of course, the German race came out on top. They were there. And the Jews were classified as the bottom, the top, the bottom of this racial pyramid. If you get to Berlin, do go to a site called the Topography of Terror, which was the headquarters of the Gestapo, because there this whole sort of ideological framework within which Hitler uh, and his colleagues thought 
is very clearly set out. It, it's fascinating, you know, in a way which, well, I hadn't seen it before. Anyway, in this racial pyramid of desirability, um, or undesirability, the Jewish population of Germany was seen as an, an, us, an unassimilable element, degenerate and not of the soil, because blood and borden or blood and soil were axiomatic beliefs of the Nazi ideologues. In other words, there is some kind of primeval thing about having lived in this village for 15 generations and perhaps uh, you are seen in a symbolic way to grow out of this environment in a way which the Jews who were seen as recent arrivals could never be. Anyway, this was the justification for the removal from German life of the Jewish component of the population. And as you know, they use all co uh, coercive methods at the government disposal. And Berlin, with by far the largest Jewish population and a culture that had been strongly influenced by the Jewish element of its population, became the epicenter of Jewish persecution. And this is very much a step-by-step -step process because what I think one of the fascinating things about modern dictators both of the fascist and of the communist type, is how they, they do outrageous things, but they are very careful to make the outrageous things appear to be legal and preordained. The fact that they ultimately are anything but is, is of course overlooked. And there was a step-by-step -step process under which the Jews were to be removed from their role in German public life and to be removed from the territory of Germany. And of course each step was more severe and brutal than the one preceding it. It led off very quickly after the Nazi ascension to power of boycotts of Jewish businesses in Berlin. And these of course were organised by vigilantes and therefore fascinating old black and white photographs where they would paste a great big poster on the window of a Jewish shop, you know, a moral German does not patronise this shop and all this kind of business. Then this was followed by a limit to the entry of Jews into professional organisations, such as the, the lawyers' organisation, the Berlin version of the Bar Council, Medical Association, the Berlin version of the AMA, journalist associations, etc., etc. And step one was that Jewish membership was to mirror of these associations was to mirror their proportion of the total population. No more than five percent were allowed to be Jewish of these various professional associations. This, of course, was just one phase. The next phase was the total exclusion of Jews from these professional associations through their de and which, of course, meant that they were deregistered as doctors, lawyers, dentists, and so on. And that, of course, meant that they lost their professional livelihood. Then the 1935 Nuremberg laws stripped Jews of their German citizenship and made intermarriage between Jews and Gentiles a criminal offence. At this point, of course, those that did have a Gentile partner 
were still untouched, but there was a subsequent phase when great pressure was brought on people like that to divorce their Jewish partner. Then Kristallnacht on the 9th of November 1938, when Jewish businesses were attacked and in some cases physically destroyed. Now, as you can easily imagine, all this uh, was great inducement for uh, the Jewish people of Berlin to flee Germany ASAP, which many of them did. But remember that in the 1930s, anti-Semitism was not exclusive to Germany. It may have been more virulent there, but there were echoes of it in most parts of the Western world. And quite a few Jews trying to flee Berlin and, and other parts of, West, of Germany had difficulty gaining admittance to Australia, the United States, France, Britain, or whichever country. Anyway, two-thirds of them were able to leave Berlin, but when the war broke out in 1939, something like one-third, something like 70,000 were still there. And of course, once the war had broken out, flight out of Germany was practically impossible. The only way really was if you had a friend, a friend in a Swiss or a Turkish or a Swedish or a Portuguese embassy in Berlin who gave you forged identity papers and then you could get out you know, via the neutral, the, the embassy of the neutral country in Berlin. And a few people were able to do that. But basically it was stopped, I mean, with wartime situation, uh, civilian transport uh, ceased or it all became very, a very low priority. So flight was practically impossible, yet the Nazi government wanted to clear Berlin of all Jews and Joseph Goebbels issued an edict to this effect in 1941 and that of course meant that you, they had to be deported and the deportation was to the whole pa uh, plethora of concentration camps. Now the result of this between 1941 and 1945, as you know very well, is that a very high proportion of them died there of disease, overwork, malnutrition, or were in fact killed. And so when the war ended, Berlin's large, rich, talented and Jewish community was no more. Amazingly, however, a few did survive. A research by Giles MacDonald, published in his book Berlin, A Portrait of Its History, Politics and Society, puts the figure at three and a half thousand, which considering the efficiency of, uh, of the, the Nazi administrative and persecution machine is really surprising. Now how did they survive? Well, some survived the concentration camp and they went back to Berlin. Some had been married to Gentiles who protected them and through them they were able to get forged identity papers. And the third group, and this is the most interesting, there were some who had very loyal friends who hid them. And moving from one cellar to the other, as long as you had your network of friends, and the very big if, as long as you got something to eat, you could last the distance, just. Anyway, fast forward to 50 years later, 1945 to 1995. And of course, issue of collective guilt, Jewish com of complicity of the German people in the persecution, 
uh, and the death of Jews is an issue that sort of tweaked the touch of the conscience of most Germans. And out of this arose this idea that there should be some sort of memorial as a symbol of atonement and reminder for future generations. And Berlin, having had the largest Jewish community, being the centre of power of the Third Reich, and after 1991, again Germany's capital, this was the place to have it. And this was a kind of, the following ten years became a fascinating rerun of all the moral, social, cultural issues which I've tried to touch on so far. And it involved politicians, media, intellectuals, obviously representatives of the Jewish community in Berlin, and a surprising number of the general public. And a number of attitudes, issues, policies crystallise. One group argued that there is no need for a memorial. And the best known exponent of this, uh, of this view was a Hungarian Jew called Jörg Konrad, who happened to be president of the Academy of the Arts in Berlin in the 1990s. And he put the argument, why have a memorial at all? Justice cannot be done by any aesthetic means to the atrocities that were committed, he said. In other words, it's, it's not. It's in people's consciences, and by setting it in stone, you're not going to really make the point. And furthermore, he said, there was already a Jewish museum in Berlin. Uh, I'll show you, pass this around. That's the Jewish museum, which you may have seen pictures of. And this is also, while you're handing this around, this is the new synagogue which was opened in Berlin in 1866 and it's been restored in the last 10 years. And the reason I'm passing that around, its richness and size are a very good symbol of the richness and size of the Jewish com community in Berlin before the Hitler period. Anyway, that was one point of view. Then there was another group who argued for a collective memorial, saying that it's not only Jews who were persecuted and killed by Hitler, but there were gypsies, homosexuals, the mentally impaired or ill, not to mention Hitler's political opponents, quite a few of whom met a nasty end. And therefore, if you have a memorial for Jews only, you are in fact replicating the racial hierarchy which was the basis of Nazi ideology. That you know that this group is more important or less important than that group. This group has greater moral virtue than that group, etc, etc, etc. And an English historian by the name of Michael Cullen entered this debate and, and argued this case. But there was an association for the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe in Berlin, and they brushed this argument aside. They said that the Holocaust was unique, and furthermore, anti-Semitism was the core of Nazi ideology. Therefore, what was done to the Jews was morally different, or worse, or more reprehensible than was done to the other people. Now, again, I'm not wishing to take sides on this one. Some politicians, including the Chancellor of Germany at that time, Kohl, wanted this kind of all-inclusive monument. 
But then this was to include German soldiers who fell in battle. Now this made the members of the Jewish community most uneasy. And the last straw in this process was when the symbol, the central symbol of the memorial was to be a copy of a sculpture made by the German pacifist sculptor Keta Kollwitz and it showed a mother nursing her fallen son. In fact, this was autobiographical, to put it that way, because her son fell in the First World War. And it's a beautiful piece of sculpture. If you go to the War Memorial in Berlin, do have a look at it. But of course, this caused the ultimate uproar in Jewish circles, because it reminded Orthodox Jews of the Pieta. In other words, an overtly Christian symbol was definitely not on as far as a Jewish memorial was concerned. Well, the, the Jewish community got its way and they got their own memorial. This was opened again after much toing and froing on the 12th of May 2005. The site is in the centre of Berlin, immediately to the south of the Brandenburg Gate. It's the work of a an artist architect called Peter Eisenmann who is a New York Jew and it is certainly unique and perhaps appropriately seeing that you know Berlin's Jewish community was so much in the avant-garde of the arts in the 1920s that the memorial to their destruction should be in the avant-garde of artistic creation in the 21st century and it consists of 2,711 stellae or upright grey concrete slabs arranged in a regular grid pattern. Quite amazing. They are sufficiently far apart that you can walk between them. It's like the ultimate maze. Now these stellae vary in height from 0.6 of a metre to 4.5 of a metre. 4.5 metres, and this sense of difference and unevenness and waviness is exaggerated by the fact that the floor of this memorial is also irregular, it's waving. So somebody has um, compared it to a waving field of wheat or a waving field of corn. There is no inscription there whatsoever, so if you, you know, landed from Mars and saw it you wouldn't have a clue what it is. And the idea behind it is that each person is to contemplate their own conscience and their own memories. I think it's fascinating. Whether it does what it is meant to do, I really don't know. However, there is a very interesting museum and documentation centre at one corner of it. You go underground and, and that obviously makes the point as to what, it, what this site is about. And it is very well done. You can have your, if you have lost relatives uh, in a <coughs> concentration camp, you can have the, the details of the people who you've lost recorded there on a database. And then the display is very, very interesting. It's done to a considerable extent on the basis of individual family histories. And you know, there's a couple of very interesting ones, you know. Grandmother and grandfather died in Auschwitz, and the son and daughter-in-law now live in Sydney. Type of thing. 
So it, it, it's, it's very, very interesting, you know, and making reference to all the places that uh, surviving Jews were able to emigrate to both during and after the, sec uh, the Second World War. Now, coming to the final section of my talk, the Jewish community in Berlin today. Over 60 years have passed since the largely successful attempt to obliterate the Jewish community of Berlin. But today there is again a thriving and Jewish population in that city, thanks largely to a series of unforeseen events since Germany's reunification. To put this into context, as you know, Berlin was divided between 1961 and 1989 by war, and contact on the between East and West was severely restricted, about as severely restricted as is possible, uh, when the wall is there and the people on the other side are only 300 metres away from you. And this, of course, meant that Jewish population in the two halves of the city was also split. In West Berlin there were roughly sort of six, seven thousand Jews by the 1980s. There were those who survived and their children. Then there was a trickle from Poland and the Soviet Union or Jews who after 1945 intended to migrate to some new world country but for a series of complex reasons they didn't. They stay there. They stayed in West Berlin. And the general tone of, of the small community was keep your head down, work hard, don't draw attention to yourself. In other words, don't publicise the fact that you were Jewish. And which was an understandable response to the fact that, you know, your, your neighbour down the street may have had some role in obliterating other members of your community. However, in 1949, a Berlin Jewish Council was established and that was chaired by a survivor of a concentration camp for the next 30 years, a man called Heinz Galinsky. And Galinsky did not hesitate to, to jolt the Germans' guilty conscience about Jewish persecution on numerous occasions. And of course, any signs of a neo-Nazi revival would evidently get him on television to warn against it. So in that sense, the Jewish presence was a public one. But in terms of numbers, of course, it, it was a very small proportion of what was in Berlin before 1933. East Berlin was also interesting. There are roughly 1,500 there, but many of them, the majority, did not out themselves, if one might apply that phrased uh, to a Jewish community. And the reasons for this weren't just, how shall I say, a fear of drawing attention to themselves, but the fact that those who, who stayed in East Berlin in, chose to stay in East Berlin because until 1961 they all, all they had to do is catch a metro line and they could get off at a station in West Berlin and live in a free democratic <coughs> city. No, most of them were Marxists. They had, you know, strong Marxist extreme left-wing political sympathies. And that was their badge of identity, not their Jewishness. They had absolutely no interest in synagogues and kosher food and any of that. 
And a very interesting example of this is a man called Gregor Gysi, who now is the leader of the Linkspartei, the extreme left-wing socialist party in German political life. He comes from three generations of a Marxist family, but as the, the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, became more and more authoritarian and arbitrary, he became a, a human rights lawyer and did have some successes in ameliorating the sentences passed on dissenters and so on and so on. So in other words, when uh, Germany became reunited, um, he didn't have a sufficiently blotted past uh, to have to withdraw into oblivion, as a lot of the secret policemen, the Stasi people did, and he was able to forge a new political career very much on the basis of classical socialist, left-wing socialist principles. And another very interesting PS to him is, when we were in Berlin in 1968, there was suddenly this photograph of Gregor Gysi opening a bottle of champagne and proposing a toast to his aunt. And I looked at this, what's going on here? And his aunt had just been given the Nobel Prize for Literature. And his aunt was none other than Doris Lessing. <laughs> because Doris Lessing's first husband was a Berlin refugee in what at that time was Rhodesia, later Zimbabwe. So, you know, these very interesting permutations, networks that exist. <laughs> and at the same time in East Berlin, the Holocaust and the persecution uh, destruction of Jews was never an issue, never an, a public issue. And the rationale for this was, how shall we say, clever logic. The communist elite in East Germany argued that Jewish persecution during the Third Reich was exclusively the work of fascists and capitalists, in which, of course, the German working class, hallowed as it was, played no part. Therefore, now we have our proletarian state, this is an issue that doesn't concern us. And at no point was any restitution made to the relatives of victims. At no point was restitution made to Israel, which was, you know, the, the West German government paid significant sums of money in restitution to Israel over a period of about 20, 25 years, from about 1950 to about 1970. And there was very little interest in the restoration of symbols of a Jewish presence in East Berlin. But of course, I mean, this last point is very much part of the fact that an atheistic Marxist state had no, not much interest in the restoration of symbols of, Jew, of any sort of religious life, whether it was Jewish, Christian, Islamic or whatever. Although, what was interesting, by the mid-80s, there was a greater realisation that the symbols of pre-communist culture in East Berlin should perhaps not be bulldozed or discarded. And the restoration of that most lavish synagogue, which you've seen on the pictures there, was in fact commenced by the East German government and then completed by the 
reunited German government and the reunited city of Berlin. Anyway, post-reunification. On the 18th of March 1990, the first and last democratically elected parliament of East Germany sat. And they offered, they passed a law offering asylum to persecuted Jews. And within six months, more than 5,000 came in from what was then the collapsing Soviet Union. When Germany was reunited on the 3rd of October in 1990, the reunited German government continued this very generous interpretation of the concept of asylum for refugees. And it was always a moot point. It was much more an issue of moral guilt and conscience than of actual asylum seekers who are being physically persecuted in the ex-Soviet Union or the Ukraine or any of the other independent countries that became heirs of the Soviet Union. This generous interpretation of asylum, as far as people with Jewish papers were concerned, continued until 2005. And at that time, this is another very ironic situation, it was in fact as much the pleas, the lobbying of the Jewish community in Berlin, which tightened the regulations as anything else because they were being flooded by people from the East and they couldn't cope. <laughs> and from then on and since then, uh, the concept of asylum seekers is much more tightly interpreted than it was in the 15-year period, 1990 to 2005. And during this time, there was a large flow of asylum seekers with Jewish papers into Berlin. The result was that there was a quadrupling of the Jewish population of Berlin from around about 15 to 20,000 to around about 80 or 90,000. And it's very interesting fine print in all this. I uh, interviewed the chair of the Jewish community two years ago, Lala Zuzkin, a fascinating woman, and she spoke of a figure of 20,000 being in the Jewish community. Now there's a large gap between 20,000 and 80 or 90,000 and she never really explained that. I had to ferret that one out myself. And how and what is this? And this gets us to the question, what is a Jew and how do you interpret this? It had to be interpreted very broadly because as you most probably know, the traditional definition is the need to have a Jewish mother. You know, a very pragmatic solution. In those days, perhaps fathers were more nomadic than they are now, and it was the mother who was the stable point, and if you could prove a Jewish mother, you were classified as Jew. But quite a few of these people coming to Berlin from the ex-Soviet Union didn't have Jewish mothers, yet they wanted their children enrolled in a Jewish school. So the rabbis again became practical, and they didn't redefine a Jew, but they created associate Jews, which is a fascinating concept. You are, but not quite. And this gained admittance to the children of these Jewish schools. They may have had a Jewish father, but they definitely didn't have a Jewish mother. <laughs> And in some cases it was very problematic because Jewishness 
likely to be limited to having a Jewish grandfather or aunt. In other words, it was much more indirect. And now how do you explain this? Well, as somebody said to me, a journalist said to me, this concept of Jewishness says much more about the resourcefulness of the applicants for Jewish identity papers in the ex-Soviet Union and the corruption of the ex-Soviet bureaucracy than it says about the definitions of Jewishness. In other words, quite a few of them are at least obliquely Jewish, but of course by being able to get Jewish identity papers, they were admitted as, as asylum seekers into Germany and settled in Berlin. So this figure of 80,000, is a very wobbly one, very rubbery one at the best of times. The other very interesting dimension to this issue is that a trickle of these people came to Berlin via New York or Israel. Now why? Well, the Israeli group, because as you know, the overwhelming uh, percentage of these people who left the ex-Soviet Union wanted to go to Israel. I've seen statistics, but you know, they, they now form something like 10 or 12% of the population of Israel. So it's a, a very significant group, and they've got their own political party, and evidently there are problems in their integration because they are so Russian, so on and so on and so on. Anyway, some of these people decided they weren't sufficiently Jewish to want to live in a Jewish state. Furthermore, the access to immediate social welfare help and language courses in Berlin was more generous, so that encouraged them to come there. And similarly, some went to New York and then found the rough and tumble of deregulated American capitalism difficult to cope with. Remember, these were people who grew up and whose parents grew up in Marxist Soviet Union and the rough and tumble of capitalism would be difficult to cope with. Uh, and they heard, yes, they can apply as asylum seekers to Germany and quite a trickle of them came to Berlin. And very interestingly, there's a trickle from Israel back to Berlin whose grandparents were Berliners. These were people who maintained the language in the family, maintained German social customs in their families, and now with the reunification of Germany, Berlin again being a very interesting centre of culture, have drifted back there. And a few of the teachers in the newly established Jewish schools in Berlin are of this ilk. They were born in Israel, but they have grandparents who were Berliners, and they still have a certain affinity with the language and the culture. A couple of examples, prominent examples of, of the points I've just been trying to make. Michael Blumenthal, whose book I've already mentioned, he fled Berlin in 1939 as a 13-year-old boy with his parents. He eventually ended up in the United States where he had the proverbial brilliant career, professor of economics at Princeton, a banker, secretary to the treasury during Jimmy Carter's presidency between 1976 and 1980 or 1978 and 82, I've forgotten which. And then in 1997 he accepted the directorship of the Jewish Museum, which you see on one of the pictures I've handed around. 
and he's he is very happy to go back and rediscover his Berlin roots. But you know, a very interesting comment was, my wife doesn't come, my children don't come, and I don't expect them to. I'm they're Americans now, but I still have this certain something about Berlin in me. Another interesting example is a man called Heinz Berggrün. He was a journalist who fled Berlin in 1936. He eventually became a successful art dealer and art collector in Paris. Picasso was amongst his circle of friends and he never forgot his Berlin roots. He returned in 1996 and bequeathed his art collection, roughly 200 pieces by luminaries such as Picasso, Cezanne, Van Gogh, Giacometti, to Berlin. And there's now a Berggrün Museum. His two sons are property developers and they are developing major projects in Berlin and, you know, recall their father's association with the city. Third example, which is quite interesting because there's a Melbourne connection, is a man called Helmut Newton, whose uh, original name was Helmut Neustetter. He was a photographer, a young man, I think he was only 16 or 18, when he fled Berlin in 1938. I don't know how, but he ended up in Singapore, from which he then was deported to outback Australia where he spent the war years uh, laying railway sleepers between Darwin and Catherine. After the war he drifted to Melbourne where he opened a, his first photographic studio, married a local girl who became his model, professional, his model and she was his model for the next 20 or whatever years. In 1956 he gained a commission from Vogue Australia, and evidently highly thought of, which got him to Vogue Paris, Vogue United States, Vogue Italy. And he became one of the definitive uh, fashion photographers of the second half of the 20th century. He is quite fascinating. He made fashion photography quite erotic. In 2003, he bequeathed his whole collection to the city of Berlin, and now you can see it in um, his gallery uh, in the west end of Berlin, near the Kurfürstendamm. An interesting one about whom I don't know very much is, of course, Louise Adler, the publisher at MUP. She is the daughter of a Berliner, and I think she, in fact, took her mother back on a kind of journey into memory to Berlin. Now to conclude, how can one therefore describe the Jewish community of Berlin today? There's still the Vesi Ossi, the West Berliners versus the East Berliners. And they initially had to be united. There were two lots of organisations, they had to be put together. And contact between them of course for something like 30 years had been, had been hardly existing. As I said, those in the East were largely secular and Marxist, with hardly any interesting customs and rituals. And as, um, as somebody said to me in Berlin, you know, a, a kosher butcher, as far as a Marxist Jew from East Berlin was concerned, was treated as some kind of relic of a medieval set of values. So getting these two groups together was a stage one in reforming the community as it is today. And as I already mentioned, 
the large inflow of people from the ex-Soviet Union swamped them. And this raises the question, how can you integrate a minority into a community when the minority, in fact, is the majority? And, that the min and those, the long-term residents, with their values and practices and organisations, aren't going to give those up for the sake of the values and preferences and culture of the new arrivals. So who ends up integrating whom? And this is, is a question which still hovers there. Old Berliners, old Berlin uh, Jewish community members, started murmuring that the new arrivals really were intent on converting Jewish organisations in their city into nothing but a series of Russian culture clubs. And the Russian Jews, on the other hand, accused the established <coughs> Jewish elite of Berlin of shutting them out of decision-making. Now, as with these accusations, they're no doubt all exaggerated and overblown, but they all have a grain of truth in them. Now, who are these Jewish arrivals from the East? They're very hard to typify, and the chair of the Jewish community, Frau Zuskin, put it this way, and I quote, there's no such person as the typical Jewish arrival in Berlin. But then the next bit is revealing. But we do have a lot of academics and social welfare recipients, unquote. The former, the academics, she said, are perhaps the saddest cases because they have found adjustment to life in Berlin today very hard. For, firstly, their degrees, diplomas, qualifications are not recognised. So they cannot continue with their careers or resume careers or forge new careers in the area in which they have these qualifications. Large majority of them speak no German or next to no German, which is another great blocker. I mean, this is very similar to the post-war East European professional migrants who arrived in Australia, this kind of problem. Then, of course, you have the great loss of status in the Soviet Union, they may have lived in a dictatorship, they may not have earned overly high salaries, but they did have social status and professional status through their qualifications and their positions. That's all gone. Well then, the question arises, why did they come? And it's the proverbial immigrant story. They don't come for their own good, they come for the future of their children and they want their children to go to university, get first-class honours, uh, get uh, very saleable, prestigious qualifications so that they can achieve a prosperous and successful life in a free society. That really is the gist. And, of course, it's precisely the same thing that the Eastern Jews came to Berlin for, you know, 150 years earlier. So there are cycles here which I think are quite fascinating. The degree of Jewishness amongst these people varies greatly. At one extreme, some have become active members of the Jewish organisations and have accepted the fact that uh, they can't talk Russian, although they do amongst themselves. On the other hand, some have conscientiously turned away from Jewish organisations and, and lead a completely independent secular life and, and have little interest in any 
Jewish cultural trays they may have. And then the third group, some, some don't give the issue a thought. So it's all degrees. And of course remember that if these people did have a Jewish culture, it would have been the Yiddish, East European one, not the Israeli Hebrew one, which of course was, has been largely created in the preceding 50 years when they were all walled into the Soviet Union, so to speak. So the, the Jewish experience of the Western world, which was triggered by the establishment of Israel, and the culture which it has evolved and disseminates to Jewry in other countries, has largely passed these people by. And, and one of the accusations against some of these people is that they seem to think that Israel and the Holocaust are far less significant than Soviet discrimination and persecution of Jews under Stalin in the early 1950s. But then, of course, you know, we all have our own memories, which are the most meaningful to us, and memories of others we may accept in an intellectual sense, but they're not going to be as meaningful uh, as those that we have within our own psyche. In the meantime, these people have established a plethora of clubs and organisations in Berlin. And there is this fascinating monthly, Jüdisches Berlin, Jewish Berlin magazine. Point one, about a third of it is written in Russian, two thirds in German, and third, see, there's you've got a Russian article, you've got a German article, which says it all. Then amongst the public notices towards the back, is this fascinating array. You have a club Odessa, you have a club Moscow, you have a club Leningrad, you have a club Kiev, you have a Russian Veterans Association. So the culture which they have brought with them is still very much a Russian, perhaps Soviet culture. There are, however, integrating elements. Frau uh, Zuzkin told me they're very proud of the fact that the brains and the qualifications of all these academics have led to a successful chess Olympics being held in Berlin. They've also held a Jewish mathematics Olympics. What do you actually do there? I wasn't, I'm not quite clear about. But anyway, uh, the intellectual life is getting going. And there's a very interesting, for example, writer who came out here last year called Vladimir Kamina, he's Jewish, and he made, has, appears to have no interest in his Jewishness at all. But he's become a new way humorist writer in Berlin, uh, writing about the peccadilloes of Berlin society and of his Russian Jewish compatriots who, who've arrived in the city in the last 10 or 20 years. So the signs are again there of this kind of intellectual awakening, reawakening. Now to conclude, because we should have uh, some time for questions, it's amazing that this has happened considering that, you know, the Nazis did their darndest to obliterate the Jewish community in Berlin. That there is such a revival and you now again have the full complement of Jewish organisations. They're a synagogue, orthodox, liberal. I think in the liberal one, 
they are doing really something revolutionary. They have a female rabbi. Now that's something Rome hasn't come at yet, so let's wait. Uh, they have primary, secondary schools. They even have a rabbinical seminary in, outside Berlin in Potsdam. They have hospitals, nursing homes, kindergartens, kosher butchers, the museum, there's Jewish theatre. And of course, quite a bit of this has been facilitated by subsidies uh, given uh, by the city of Berlin and the federal German government. And they are very grateful for this. But of course, and this is, you know, a wistful final sentence to my talk, what cannot be revived is the dynamic, influential and highly creative role played by many Jews in the Berlin prior to 1933. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hergeen. That was a very comprehensive and very informative talk. I think we'll open it up to questions now since we have some time. Would anyone like to ask Dr. Hajou some questions? You yes, please. You haven't mentioned anything about the Chabad movement that's become quite active, I understand, in all of Eastern Europe. I don't know much about that, no, to be honest with you. So, and, and you've read about this as far as Berlin is concerned? Well, I, oh, that's something to pull up. No, I haven't heard much about that. Mm. Thank you. Please. Just a note about the last bit of your speech. The, the changes narrowing the number of um, people coming from the East as asylum seekers in 2004 thereabouts yes. was, in fact, part of a wider yes, change. Yes, it was. So the other group which was Germany, affected so it wasn't by just the no. local saying we're overloaded it was part of a wider it was. I mean the Jewish uh, the leaders of the Jewish community put it this way, they didn't mind the tightening of the stipulations because they were being flooded and they had difficulty coping. Um, but as far as the German government was concerned, it was a wider the motivation was much wider because there was another group who were flooding in. And they were the, in inverted commas, ethnic Germans, because you see, German concept of citizenship since the imperial period, you know, prior to 1914, was very blood and soil. If you could prove that in your family tree, way back there, there was a great aunt or great uncle who was an ethnic German, you were classified as an ethnic German and gained easy admittance. Now there was quite a large ethnic German population in Russia who had been encouraged to settle there from the time of Catherine the Great, 1760 or something like that. She, and she in fact you know, invited groups of German settlers and gave them land and they were sort of scattered southeastern Russia, lower Volga and Stalin treated them in the most horrible manner. He accused them of being you know, Nazi spies and deported them all into Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan and what have you. And so they had a very hard time there. And then even during the period 
of Germany's division, a few were able to get out and gain residence permits in West Germany because of this ethnicity. Now when the Soviet Union collapsed, they flooded in and they were automatically granted citizenship. And then of course the German authorities sat up and said, my God, hardly any of them speak a word of German. A lot of them were from rural areas, villages, very low level of skills. The next generation, the teenage kids, started forming gangs. So all the, you know, the classical social problems with migrants who are difficult to integrate. And this was becoming apparent by 2005. So tightening the asylum welcoming mat, so to speak, was also motivated by this. And the major change as far as these ethnic Germans were concerned was language tests. You had to have, I don't know what level of command of German before you, you gained admittance. And this has, I think, reduced that flow to a very small trickle. Yes, please. Well, I were in Berlin two years ago, and uh, we went there with the Superman trepidation, even though I was born in front of Maine. When we were at the Uniskin Memorial, we were actually very, very surprised to see the extent of education that was given to German students, that would be uh, high school students, uh, which uh, we implied and said that this was actually part of their curriculum. Did you find that general amongst uh, Berlin in other areas? Well, remember that they've gone through various phases. I think there was the immediate phase after the Second World War was don't talk about it, you know. And the Germans rolled up their sleeves and worked hard to become rich. And there was this, you know, forget about that. And I think that changed when? Late 60s, early 70s. And from then on, there was more and more looking back at seeing what in fact happened, you know, the, the atrocities and the generally shady side of the Third Reich. So young people now are getting all of that. I mean, there are, if you go to this um, memorial site, the one you see on the postcard in Berlin, there are always, you know, a great line of buses parked there. Now, some of those buses are, you know, tourists from other countries, but they include buses of school groups and other people like that who are being sensitised to this. So I think um, if you compare it with the Japanese and their processing of their past, the Second World War, uh, the Germans particularly, you know, in the last 30 years have done far, far more of it than most other countries. I mean, you know, you can't talk about the Cultural Revolution in China today and I think there's a lot you can't talk about in Russia today because it's inevitably somebody's grandfather who did it. <laughs> yes, so I think yes, there is a considerable enlightenment. And then of course there were television series. There was a, a Hollywood made one which was telecast in Germany, which caused quite a sensation. And that was in the 1930s. 
and then of course Schindler's List, the book and the film. So all of this has contributed to a greater awareness. And plus, I think, a general a strong streak of pacifism amongst younger Germans. You know, the Germans are most uneasy about sending peacekeepers to places like Afghanistan. And as you might know, ten days ago they, they stepped out of line with the other key Western countries and decided not to send, not to bomb anybody in Libya. And, then, and that very much reflects a strong pacifist streak, which is a kind of reaction against a lot of this. Did you find, uh, just one more question, did you find uh, amongst the parents or the Germans who actually went through the war uh, much anti-Semitism with that uh, particular group? Well, well remember, it, it's a hard one, and I'm sure there have been surveys done about this, but remember, most of us have our formative years. Now, I don't quite know when those formative years stop. But things that we are told when we are 16, 18 or 20 are more likely to embed themselves deep down than things that we hear are told and are presented evidence with when we are 47. So that generation I think, it, as I say, it, it's incredibly hard to generalise. There is a kind of residual thing that, yes, um, perhaps Hitler was right, but it ended in catastrophe. And that, of course, is always the trump. Even if something, some element of Third Reich policies in my deepest psyche I may have agreed with because it was drummed into me when I was a teenager. Nobody can deny that it ended in catastrophe. Full stop. That sort of put paid to that one. Look where it got us. You know. The fact that you know, West Germany worked its way up after 1945 very successfully, I mean that's a different issue. But Hitler got us to a state where we ended up as a scrap heap Eight million dead. The country was chopped in half, etc., etc., etc. You know. Uh, now, younger people, I think, are different. Now, they say there is a, a, a theory that the 1968 generation, that is, the children of people who went through the Third Reich, these would have been young people who were born immediately after the war. They rebelled and became anarchists, Marxists and every other thing because they felt that their parents weren't communicating with them. You know, they were confronting their parents with the question, Father, what did you do on Kristallnacht, you know, type of thing. And the parents didn't give. And there is that theory that they sort of then went to the other extreme of extreme left-wing anarchist socialism blah blah blah. Now that group is now 50 or 55 and the most interesting protagonist of that group is a man called Joschka Fischer who was foreign minister in the Green Social Democrat government between 1908 and 2005 
who became and is now regarded as one of the best foreign ministers Germany has had. So some then they grow up and mature or whatever words you wish to use and use their talents in the mainstream direction of politics. Others of course, a few have ended up being terrorists, you know, Bader, Meinhof gang and all that. So that's that generation. Now the ones after that, they are, I think, they, they say, well, we should know about it and what, isn't it dreadful? But we are a new generation. And I do think they are different. There's a strong pacifist streak. There is a, a serious commitment to Europe, a united Europe, except now, you know, that their pockets are affected, having to bail the Greeks out and a few others. There are limits to this commitment. But there has been a generally a serious commitment to a united Europe amongst younger Germans and I would say a large number of older Germans as well. And there is now a tradition of living in a democracy which they greatly value. And you know, Germany is a very good functioning democracy. And this of course is the big difference with East Germany and the other ex-communist states, that when Germany was united the West Germans, in the majority of cases, actually went in and ran things. And in other words, they, the, the East Germans were taught how to do it by the democratic West Germans. And because, you know, as you know, one of the big problems in, in the other ex-communist countries is they lurch from one crisis to the next and it's poor political judgment, corruption, all of these things which are a reflection of basically not having, I think, a sufficient depth of understanding of, of what democracy is about. So I would say, yes, the younger ones are very different. Yes. How, how, you talked about it, how unique is sort of, you know, this uh, regeneration of Jewish life in Berlin um, compared to other places in, in Germany or in... What you said about Berlin before the war, are you talking about Berlin, the whole of Berlin, not just the Jewish community? No, no, Berlin compared to other cities in Germany. Ah, well, I think Berlin has been marvellous the, the, for a reunited Germany. Inasmuch as Berlin, you know, the Germans seem to have this genetic predisposition of wanting everything to be ordered and clean. You know, and, and I don't necessarily say that in a facetious sense because that is one of the enjoyable things about living in Germany, that things work, you know. And then Germans poo-poo you know, how chaotic this is in country X or country Y. And, you, and there is a truth there that they, I don't know what it is. They, and other towns in Germany do have this ordered, clean, managed appearance. Now, you can't do that in Berlin in as much as it's a great big tumble-down city. See, remember, Berlin today has a million fewer people than it had in 1939. So you arrive there and there's all this sort of semi-derelict real estate which has seen better days. And you see these sorts of, you know, really imposing structures built 1910 or 1925 or thereabouts. Obviously, you know, the head office of some great big company or institution. 
And now you look more closely and it's sort of on short-term leases to some young bloke who wants to start an IT business and can't afford to pay the rent anywhere else. So in other words, the past is grander than the present and it's dishevelled and also it always, it, it hasn't got an elite, a social elite that sets the tone the way other cities have in, well not just in Germany but you know in other European countries as well. It's a free and easy city which means that it's become a magnet for young people from other parts of Germany. It's where you let loose, you know, you can, doesn't matter what clothes you wear or don't wear or what colour you paint your hair or how spiky it is and where you put the ring, is it in your lip or in the ear or uh, through your nostril, you know, it's that kind of place. And I think that is very, very valuable for Germany to have a place like that where young people, okay, six, eight years later they may go back to Dusseldorf or Frankfurt and put on the grey suit and the white shirt and the dark tie and become respectable bankers but I think it's very good to have had that in your life, you know? So in that sense it's vital. Now the, the tangible aspect of that is that it's a, become a very vibrant artistic centre not in the grand way of big name artists, but where, you know, a start-up painter-sculptor can rent some loft or some old workshop in the backyard of a tenement building and pay next to no rent and, you know, experiment with doing things. And this is reflected in the plethora of private art galleries. There, there are hundreds of them everywhere. Now, somebody said to me, yes, we're good at that but the big bucks aren't spent here. In other words, when that artist or sculptor becomes famous, he or she will inevitably go back to Paris, New York, London, or place like that, or Tokyo increasingly. And I said, why is that? He said, ah, because that's where you get the top prices. We don't have a wealthy middle class which will pay 380,000 for a work of art just like that, as, as these other cities do. So it's, it's a very vibrant start-up cultural thing. Now the high arts are also vibrant because they're heavily subsidised. Because the only sphere of life where Berlin has any chance of getting up there, where it was in 1928, is the arts. The banking's gone to Frankfurt airport has gone to Frankfurt, industry has gone to Munich, Düsseldorf, Stuttgart. So all the big companies which it had before the war are there and they're not going back. But the arts is an area where they can compete and they do and they've got you know the establishment theatres, they've got the three opera houses, they've got three major symphony orchestras and all that. Now it's Oh, they're proud of the fact that they get, I think, varies from about 40 to 80% from ticket sales. But the top-up is very, very important. And the ticket sales are getting better because, of course, the big success economically in Berlin since reunification has been tourism. They're very proud of the fact they've pipped Rome 
They are now the third most popular urban destination in Europe after Paris and London. So the money is flowing in and of course all these people buy tickets to concerts, theatres, so and so on. Does that sort of answer your question? Any others? Well, Joe, thank you very much. I appreciate it. On behalf of, uh, let's uh, give a round of applause. On behalf of uh, Bruce Wilson and the Center. Oh, this is nice. Token. A European one. <laughs> I don't know, I didn't select. <laughs> thank you very much.